Thanks for joining us, guys, uh, to uh, number three in the Mythgar Movie Club, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We're so excited that Corey is here so we can kind of combine forces for Mythgard Academy and the movie club and hopefully get some good discussion going. Um, I think uh, we had a few announcements of upcoming events that we wanted to kind of let you know ahead of time first. Yes. So, um, well, for those of you who are um, doing that Mythgard Academy, uh, we're currently on the War of the Ring. Um, and I just was realizing right before we're starting, I said I have that up there on Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern, which is true most weeks, but not next week, right? Like, That's correct, yeah. That, that, that'll be two Wednesdays from now. Exactly. Uh, we'll restart with yep. that. Yeah. Um, also, coming up, um, we've got some really cool uh, stuff through the Signum Symposia uh Series. Um, Rob Goslin's going to be presenting his thesis, which is on uh, subcreation. Um, it's really good. I've actually read it. It's really interesting. I've read it because he, you know, cites my own thesis in it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, he, he sent me a, a, a copy. So it's a really good thesis because it's got some really good source materials. Um, no, but <laughs> or, or, or maybe despite the source materials. Uh, also coming up. Um, there in March, about a month from now, is um, something I thought was really interesting. We're going to have a transhumanism in literature roundtable, which I wasn't even sure what that meant and had to look that up when I saw the event uh, page come through there. So (laughs) um, that looks like it's going to be pretty interesting, Um, like singularity, consciousness in robots, that type of stuff for anyone who's interested there. Um, Also coming up, we've got... uh, we, I know Corey's been promoting this one pretty hard, the uh, London Moot um, in April, uh, yeah. which registrations are going on now. And I think the call for papers and stuff is mm-hmm. still is going yep. on. Yep, definitely. Um, so you can go to LondonMoot.com and find out more about that. Um, whether you're in Europe or not, people, I think, are going uh, some from here in the U.S. too. It's true, um, yeah. And then we've got, uh, in June, we've got, of course, Myth Boot coming up the cfp is still up for that we've got all of the um registration and lodging information is all there uh, in the event section of the signum university website um and then another big thing happening this summer uh pretty much right after myth moot is we're going to be having our signum academy uh reading camps um and you can see the four books there um one of those books will be something we're talking about uh here coming up soon in our next uh, Mythgard movie club session, uh, Wrinkle in Time, um, and of course, redoing The Hobbit and expanding out to um, Lion, Witch of the Wardrobe, Harry Potter and Sorcerer's Stone, and, uh, and Wrinkle in Time. So just want to make sure folks are aware of there. You can learn more at these web addresses on the internet. And uh, yeah. And let's not forget, of course, our next movie club session. The most important events of all, get a slide. All, all of their own. Um, so uh, next up, we have the new uh, adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time, uh, which uh, I am very excited about. It's a favorite book of mine from childhood. Um, and, and and we'll have some new panelists who are very passionate about that story. So I was just going to say, we've got some discussion. people who, maybe whose names people know, but are, who are new to the movie club. So... Um, you know, regular Signum, uh, you know, attendees, uh, Sharon Hoff, 
Sparrow, Alden, and Kay Ben Abraham are all going to be on that panel. And um, I think Curtis is the only one who's not read and fallen in love with this book yet. So I have um, never read it. I I know Tesseract has something to do with it, but I don't know. Yes, and I know. Some people are very excited about this adaptation and others are very wary of it. So I anticipate some good debate. <laughs> I, uh, um, I I saw a preview in the theater when uh, the second time I went to see um, whatever it was that Star Wars movie. And uh, uh, it was I was I was I was impressed. I was I was I, I thought it looked very interesting. Uh, you know, yeah. definitely not what I was expecting. Yeah. No, I don't know what I was expecting, but it was it was other than what I was expecting. I think that's true for book readers as well. Yeah. It definitely, yeah. they they are going. You know, for better or worse, they are charting their own kind of path. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a really good session. Yeah. Um, so that's on March 29th, and then after that, we are going to do Alien, um, the Ridley Scott classic. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's our first kind of foray into, you know, going a a bit older, you know, a few, you know, decades now. So that's going to be coming up uh, May 3rd. Which may be surprising. I've never seen that either. um, (laughs) Really? Really. I've I've seen subsequent uh, movies in the series, but I've never seen the original. Um, So that'll be another new new one for me. Anyway. Yeah, this is so the, like the the subtitle of the series this year is like you know getting Curtis out you know to see the world. Uh, event, you know, eventually. This, is, this is all a project. Get out of your comfort zone. <laughs> all right, yeah. so, so first of all, half the movies that we're doing are first run movies this year. So right. like, okay. you can't yeah. blame me for ones that aren't even in the theater <laughs> yet. It's right. not no. an excuse. You can blame me for not reading the books. Well, see place. exactly right. Yeah. Um, but also, <laughs> I do want to say the one movie I really hoped we would get to do this year did not get chosen. <laughs> so you can't blame me for that. Oh, anyway. that's hard. So in case anybody thinks we completely rigged the system, Curtis's pick didn't make it. Maybe, maybe I'll have to convince Corey to do that one during our next uh, Webathon fundraiser. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, special. All right, so the movie at hand so uh, so i'm oh, gonna hold on before oh, sorry. we start um let's briefly introduce ourselves yeah. just because people might not know who we are um so i guess i'll go first um i'm kat and uh curtis and i are sort of spearheading this movie club project um we also do a podcast called cat and kurt's tv review where we talk about science fiction and fantasy TV series at a um, deliciously slow pace. Um, so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. And we're both, um, uh, or I'll speak for myself, I'm a recent Mythgard and Signum grad. Um, I'm an academic coordinator for University of Pennsylvania by day, and by night I do the same thing for <laughs> Salem. So, um, I was, I was, I was, I was, was going to make a joke about that, Cat. I'm like, and by night she mixes it up. You know, yeah, absolutely. No, no, nope, <laughs> yeah. nope, I just pretty much do the same thing. So, um, so if you've taken classes with Signum, you've probably exchanged emails with me. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Kurt and Cat. Up, in, up until the academic coordinator thing, it, pretty much everything she said. Um, <laughs> I am a 
digital marketer by trade. And uh, yeah, I do some of that first signum too at night. So we, I guess this is all just means we're just gluttons for punishment, like, or we're in really well, uh, like the fields of, of our careers that we've chosen just we really love them that much that we do them for, for Corey on the side as well. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And I'm Corey Olson. I think I looking at the list of names. I think most people here know who I am. Uh, I'm Corey Olson. I'm the Tolkien professor. We just finished, of course, our discussion of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book. And we talked a little bit anyway about the original uh, radio dramas. Uh, and I forbore to talk about the film adaptation because I was uh, uh, looking forward to joining this fun panel uh, to talk about it together. So I am uh, delighted to be invited to uh, uh, to come and talk about this film uh, with all of these other wonderful people with whom it is uh, uh, such an honor to be to be grouped here. Sorry, am I next? Yes. Oh, hi. Yes, hi. <laughs> Um, I'm Kelly. I've been with Signum and Mythgard for since 2012, so a while now. Um, and I'm just about to finish or start really my thesis, um, but then I'll be finished with my master's. Um, and I, by day, I'm a bookseller, so same thing. I talk about books all day, and then I, I go to Signum and I talk about books even more. So happy to be here. <laughs> A bookseller at the coolest bookstore on the West Coast. I mean, it's not yeah. like you're just any old bookseller, right? <laughs> yeah, Mysterious Galaxy does uh, science fiction and fantasy, so yeah. um, I'm, I'm just I just talk about dragons all day, guys. Very cool. <laughs> I don't. I, I changed my mind. I'm not in the right career. I want that one. Yeah. Come to San Diego. I'm Dominic, and, and I talk about politicians all day. I'm a, I'm a political scientist by So you trade. talk about dragons, too. So, see, there you go. It's very uh, similar. Pretty much, <laughs> except not as pretty. <laughs> right. Um, uh, political scientist by day, but I've actually tried to combine that interest with my interest in science fiction and fantasy. Every once in a while, I've been known to write uh, articles or blog posts about politics in Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. I might be working on something about Dune this summer. Um, I also blog occasionally on, on my website, Nardy Views. So um, if you want to check out more of my work there, um, I have taken some Signum classes, so I have um, you know, done that in the past as well. So um, I'm, I'm here more as a casual fan of Hitchhiker's Guide. So um, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And I'm sorry, uh, Mike Mora seems to be implying that I uh, should apologize to dragons for my previous remark. I'm sorry if I offended any dragons who were in attendance. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So sorry for jumping the gun. Um, thank you, Kat, for uh, setting me back on track, which is like mostly of what our podcast is about. Too. Um, That's pretty much what Kat does. Yeah, absolutely. Um so I, I know um, a lot of times we sort of jump in and, and kind of get first impressions on the film, but I want to take the opportunity here to, um, like, this is a new thing, right? It, it, like, as far as we're um, only three of our movie club sessions in, um, you know, the first one we, we did, Eternal Sunshine, was just a standalone story and, and had a really great discussion. Uh, the second one was was that Star Wars film. What was that called again, Corey? Uh, the Last Jedi. Whatever. Yeah, that uh, one. Yeah, whatever yeah. that was. Um, <laughs> Revenge of the Force. Which, which um, was, of course, uh, a new... Um, <laughs> 
a, a new installment in a series, but wasn't an adaptation or anything. So this is our first um, movie that's an adaptation of a previous story and, and, or, you know, several previous stories. And I really like this quote from uh, William Thomas, um, who reviewed uh, the film back in 2005 when it first came out um, and said, this movie adaptation of the TV adaptation of the novelization of the radio series is about as faithful as you can get. <laughs> and when I read that, my immediate question was, as faithful to what? Like, you just named four different things what is the story here faithful to and and you know there were there's there's other adaptations that he doesn't even name in there um and so kind of in discussing you know hitchhiker's guide specifically i also wanted to just kind of take the opportunity to say like from a high level like like how do we address this sort of thing in the movie club like we can set some precedent here what you know um to what must we be faithful when we talk about adaptations Mm -hmm. and um need we be faithful to anything um and all of that so um i threw up here i just kind of listed out the adaptations at least i knew of and um just kind of want to throw out that question of like is it is it possible or even desirable to to try to talk about the film without discussing the adaptations um you know or its, its predecessors actually is it um is it necessary like if we do that are there some that we should be relying on more than others. And um, and then I threw this last question in just of like, I saw this a lot of like people doing, um, I guess the crit fic thing of like, Adams would not have liked this movie. And it's like, well, how do you know? Like, just because it was different or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have a, um, I mean, I, I'll just throw that out to the group if anyone has some burning thoughts to start with, or, or, or we can just kind of go around and get, people's thoughts on that um so yeah anyone have any burning answer uh or or thoughts about it how how any of these things are? um well my my first thought is of course like if we're going to be if we're asking the question of you know which what are we being faithful to my first thought is of course we should be faithful to anything that douglas adams like the creator of this original play text whatever um actually wrote um but i actually don't know the history like i i i didn't i know he did the the radio broadcast but the other things that you mentioned the live action tv show or if text-based computer game i actually don't know his involvement with this i know that he involved he was uh involved with the movie but i don't know does anyone know what kind of sort of levels that douglas adams was involved with with the other adaptations well, I know he was in. He, he was involved with the computer games, definitely. I think he he wrote some text-based computer games. So, um, and the novelization, obviously. And I'm not sure the TV show. Does anybody think, know? To yeah, what? I think that he was involved with the TV show okay. as well. Yeah, I'm almost. I, in fact, I think he was like very protective of the story, from what I understand. I, I'm I'm not the uh, so. <laughs> Uh, spoiler, my introduction to the Hitchhiker's Guide stories is through the movie we're about to talk about. So I'm certainly not like a lifelong uh, fan or whatever of all the different versions. Um, The versions that I'm aware of and have seen, I've seen within like the past month (laughs) in preparation for this, (laughs) um, other than the book, which I I had read, but read after I first saw the movie. Um, So from what I understand, though, from my research is that he was very protective of the story, very much liked uh, being involved in all the things. And even um, when he when he 
Uh, well, I, I don't want to jump the gun on the Doctor Who stuff, but I know, like, for example, um, when he pulled stories out of Doctor Who, it, he liked the stories and then adapted them to, like, the Hitchhiker's Guide universe. So, mm-hmm. you know, he very much had um, that sort of level of control over pretty much all of these things. Um, now, I, I threw in, like, also different versions because I was struck, um, Corey, by something you said in um, the Mythgard Academy thing about listening to the audio book version specifically in reference to, I think it was footnotes um, and, and the footnote specifically that talks about Ford prefect and how like you didn't even realize it was a footnote when you were listening to it. So like things like that, that are even sort of incidental, but can kind of subtly change how we understand the story or how we approach it. And so I, I feel like even if it's not like a different version per se of the story, it's like a, a slightly different presentation or, or whatever of the story there. Um, Well, and so Sharon in the, in the chat pointed out that he, even if he was protective and involved in all these different adaptations, there are differences between them. So subtle though they may be, he wasn't above changing things when he thought there might be a better way of doing something that might fit the format that he's working in. So, um, you know, even the most, jealous kind of creator I think if they're doing new versions of their work they're they're subtly sort of evolving it each time they do it yeah I mean exactly and that to me is one of the things that makes this most interesting in just in thinking about it as an adaptation right because we don't just have a book and then a film derived from the book, right? I mean, that's that's not the kind of situation that we have here. We have this, you know, again, as as, as William Thomas is suggesting in that uh, in that you know really neat quote, this is the end of a long chain of adaptation, and Adams being involved so actively in so many of those different adaptations, and there are very significant differences. I mean, there's, there's of course, much that's retained from the radio broadcasts to the, to the book, for instance, as we were talking about in the Mythgard Academy class. But I find the changes pretty radical. I, for, you know, on my, for myself, I, I, I would not say that there is very... that When I look at the differences between the book and the film, I don't think that those difference, those differences are not, in my mind, much more radical than the changes between the radio broadcast and the book. You know, the, the changes that Adams himself made when he adapted his own story. I'm not saying that they're the same changes that he would have made, or that, but I'm saying the, the, the quantity of change, the amount of difference between them is, is I, I, I don't find it radically different. And so obviously to say, oh, they changed it. Adams wouldn't approve seems to me silly. He himself did lots of lo- of changes of this kind. Uh, you know, even though so much is retained, so many of the jokes and so much of the dialogue from the radio broadcast to the book, um, the whole shape of the story, shape and focus and, and, and narrative of the story uh, really changes very dramatically, I find. Um, so, so yeah, uh, you know, the, the, the shifts that we get in the, in the, in the film don't seem to me radically different. Um, but yeah, so as always, I think, you know, the best thing we can do is sort of look at the film on its own ground and then be doing some comparison and contrast, but, con- you know, sort of cognizant of the fact that we're, co- we're contrasting with either something like really fluid, <laughs> right, on its own, or to like a number of different things. And we can't, you know, there is no one single... Um, 
in this case, as much as any other example I can think of, um, you know, there is no like essential text, right? There is no original. There's really nothing to be faithful to. It's a series of different versions of this. Uh, and so it's really just to compare this to sort of all of them, really. I wonder how much of this, though, is driven by the nature of Hitchhiker's Guide as a as a story in that, um, Curtis, we were talking, and uh, Kat, we were talking a bit before the, po- the started about how, in a lot of ways, this is Hitchhikers is a story about a series of moments rather than a, a, a cohesive narrative. Um, you know, it, it isn't um, it isn't really about Arthur Dent's character arc so much as it is about a series of witty, funny, clever moments strung along together. Um, so I, I I wonder if there's if it's a, if that type of story is a bit more interchangeable than say like the Lord of the Rings or um, a Dune where you know, Paul Chades has to have a certain character arc. So if you take part of his character arc out of the story in a movie adaptation, you might actually be missing part of his journey. Right. Yeah. And I think one of, like, it's interesting, one of the main characters, as you will, is actually the guide. So I feel like if you have the guide in, in every, I mean, you could add on um, passages from the guide in that same sort, sort of style and the same sort of jokes and still have it have the spirit of the original right. play book all of that right. right and and what's interesting is of course even in the midst of the story itself the guide itself is being edited right even if it's mm-hmm. only to add mostly before harmless right like that guide itself is being updated and and i mm-hmm. i only watched like the first couple episodes of the tv show but i feel like they make even a bigger deal there um Ford Prefect does of about like oh I'm I'm sending edits like to the editor of the guide as we're going along mm-hmm. um, you know and talking about it so um, yeah like even even if you're using that as your basis like that in and of itself is being edited as the story progresses um, you, you know and the which is one of the interesting. things it is you're right and one of the things that's really funny there for me of course is that. I was listening to the audiobook version, which isn't an adaptation. It's a performance of the book. But, of course, it's Stephen Fry who reads the audiobook. So in the film, right, when I'm, you know, there are whole <laughs> chunks of the film that in my personal experience, I'm like, that was exactly the book. I mean, they just had the book right there because it's Stephen Fry reading the same passages in the same inflection that he read the audiobook. Uh, so that was actually uh, almost surreal. I, I, I almost... An, quite unprecedented actually in my ex- movie watching experience to have the chunks of an audiobook that I know really well being read to me on, you know uh, on a film that was uh, that was really funny well and i th- what's what's interesting there too is um like you're getting that but then you're getting visual things that there's no cue about so i'm thinking of like when um I, I forget the the name of the fictional author who writes the the series the the trilogy of books about God, right? And it's like you know God's greatest mistake, and then like more mistakes. Like, and you're seeing like it pops up, and there's like the symbol for males and the symbol for females, and like you're you're like it adds just kind of another layer to yes. whatever you might have been thinking about that book was about. It's like suddenly about these other things that probably weren't at least for me. I mean, well, I saw the movie first, but <laughs> right. um, would have been like probably on my mind when if i had you know approached it from the radio or or the the book first yeah um 
Um, so yeah, so I mean that I don't. I think we kind of are all in agreement that like we can compare and contrast, but maybe don't have to like take too seriously whatever precedents come before. And I, I can't say that I'm surprised by the group we have here that that would be sort of the consensus. <laughs> but um, I did at least want to bring it up because it, it was sort of the first opportunity we've had here. And it's um, definitely I, a fascinating question in regards to this. I mean, I, I, as I say, I don't really know another example like this. Um, I mean, the only thing I can think of would be something like, a, you know, a, a a film which is dealing with like a comic book tradition concerning which books have also been written and then you in multiple authors mm-hmm. and things like that where you're really dealing with more of a sort of a culture of story than like the adaptation of a particular book but Adams's own the sort of the dominant personality of uh, uh and voice of Adams going through almost all of those adaptations makes this different even from something like that so Right. It, it is it is different in that there I mean if you kind of want to pick an original there very clearly is one. It doesn't kind of like you know the radio play is the original text but I wonder like is it just a matter of what exerts the most gravity? Like the novel came along and for whatever reason sort of seems to have kind of superseded it culturally. Like mm-hmm. people a lot, maybe a lot of people don't even realize that there was a radio drama originally, that this is, you know, a book first and foremost. Um, but the book is as much an adaptation as the movie is, but maybe people don't like the movie, so they don't count that as much, you know, not realizing that they count the book, even though the book didn't come first either. And so I think, like, it's just, you know, there, this is a really interesting kind of case study in what people consider the official text. One thing I wanted to bring up and more to the last question, do we care if Adams would have liked the final film? I don't know. I I don't know if we should care, but I think it's important to acknowledge that there, there, there's, should we care as analysts of the story, but there's also, should we care from a marketing perspective? And I think one of the things that gets tangled up in this debate is that these films and Hitchhiker's Guide was advertised in this way as, you know, it was advertised as being loyal to the book, and much of the advertising talked about how Adams was involved. And there was this, there was this, uh, you know, there was this effort to um, depict it as having had his seal of approval. So I think that's sometimes where you know, this 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 debate about whether whether or not Adams would have liked the final film comes up. And you know, you see that this on other adaptations as well. And that's sometimes, you know. Sometimes we just have to like put the put the mark put the marketing discussion to one side and right. the story analysis to another side. So presumably we're gonna from from here from here on out we're going more to the story analysis. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Well. So on that note, I'm gonna. Um, Dom, you brought up narrative. So I'll this um this slide is just uh, a number of other reviews. Um, that I ran across, or yeah, I mean, you know, snippets from a number of other reviews that I ran across. One of the things that I really found interesting, um, sort of the left side is, is the more negative and the right side is more positive, although some of them are still kind of tepid either way. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I really found interesting was about the narrative. There seems to be a lot of uh, agreement that the narrative does not play a strong role in this movie. Um, not to say that there's no narrative or plot or whatever, um, but that 
there are a lot of moments. It's um, like Roger Ebert says, it's, it's more about moments than an organizing purpose. Um, you know, a, another uh, reviewer who, who reviewed it favorably said it's a charming mess, but a mess all the same. Um, you know, and, and just kind of that idea that like, even amongst critics who are sort of either, you know, really disliked it or really um, liked it or were kind of in the middle, that all seemed to be, um, you know, the one thing that came across. And so on that note, then on the marketing side of things, um, we get the co-writer, uh, Carrie Kirkpatrick, who took, you know, care of the script after Douglas Adams um, passed away um, and kind of said that Adams had admitted that uh, Hitchhiker's Guide is that, to the Galaxy is a story with a long beginning and then an ending and there's no middle and you kind of need a middle. Um, so I guess the question is like, if Gary Kirkpatrick saw that this story needed a middle and everyone's saying, well, it doesn't really have much of a narrative, like, mm-hmm. was that a successful uh, addition, first of all? And then um, if not, like, does that make, well, I, I guess we could also wonder, do we agree with what Douglas Adams purportedly said about his own story. Um, again, going back to which version is he talking about here? Um, but like, I think Corey, you had made the comment in the um, last class of, of the book discussion, or, or actually, I guess it would have been the, um, the the radio drama discussion that it is more about moment to moment and less of like sort of a you know plot through line um, from episode to episode. So does that mean that the movie is actually closer to the original source than some of the later stuff that might have more of a narrative or not. I don't, I don't know. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that certainly I would say that's one of the things that's very noticeable from the radio drama to the book is increased narrative structure. Now the book still is not overabundant with narrative structure, um, but compared to the radio drama, it is, which is much more, I, I was about to say episodic, which I think is the same mistake I made when I like, of course it's episodic, it's in episodes, but, uh, but I mean, like even within each individual episodes, they're just kind of going from one place to another, oh, sometimes without transition, like literally, like there's just a, a sound effect and suddenly the characters are in a different place and it's not even a, explained how they got there or what or what happened right so i mean that that kind of radical lack of of narrative continuity um is one of the things that you see in the or here uh in the radio drama in the book at least it's a it's a contiguous story um but certainly i i i think that the the film certainly has a much uh i guess that the the thing i would say is an increased interest in cause and effect, even just thinking of the scene that you have the image from there, right? The film answers a question, which is never even addressed in the book, which is why Arthur, why does Ford choose to save Arthur's life, right? No rationale is given for this. I mean, they're friends, I guess, but you get the impression that Ford also had other friends, right? Why has he singled out Arthur Dent to be the one that he, ta- that he like the one human being he saves from off the earth? The film gives an answer to that, right? Because when he first arrived, Arthur saved his life. And so, you know, Ford was, uh, uh, was, was returning the favor. That kind of thinking, right? That kind of cause and effect thinking is exactly the kind of thing that we so often don't get um, 
and and you know and partly it seems that again even in the book especially Arthur right the story just sort of happens to Arthur and sometimes i think it's kind of sticking to his perspective because he has he certainly is not in control. He is least in control of all the characters. Um, at least Trillian is not in control either, but at least she knows how to drive the ship, right? So in that sense, she is more in control than Arthur is. Um, but Arthur is just, you know, he's just being carried from one place to another. Um, he doesn't have any idea where he is or what's going on. And we as the readers kind of share his perspective to some extent. And that's kind of fun. Uh, but that they did sort of... Uh, leave behind some in giving Arthur, in in particular Arthur, right? Uh, it, you know, with Trillian and the the romantic subplot, an actual beginning and end to his story. It's not just middle. I mean, I, I, it's it's to say it it's a beginning and an end without a middle still suggests that there's still a trajectory, right? But whereas there is not really, it's not really going from one place to another. Uh, direct. It's just kind of happening. Um. In some places. So I actually think, although, you know, the critics are complaining about it and I get why they do, I think the film has much more narrative shape than any other version of Hitchhiker's Guide that I know of. Well, and it's probably a relative thing, too, right? So if we're comparing it to the radio series, which just jumps from episode to episode without much explanation or or story, that's one thing. But if, if we're comparing it to, like, other modern movies made in the mid aughts, then, you know, it's not the tightly structured, you know, such and such film, uh, you know, like maybe we're used to seeing. So. And I wonder how much of their, it's always that thing of what's the complaint, the note behind the note, you know, like the thing that people are really bothered by, but they're, you know, not necessarily articulating up front of trying to sort of, I want to say graph, but like even very basically put a narrative, you know, thrust and put um, resolution onto a story that wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, originally conceived that way. Um, Maybe by kind of giving Arthur an arc and, you know, kind of, you know, fulfillment of some kind at the end and some resolution to his story, it makes, it highlights the kind of, episodic nature of it that much more whereas if people are just sort of enjoying the radio play and not expecting there to be narrative resolution that might not even occur to them quite as much but there's a kind of awkward marriage between movie three plot structure and you know completely episodic random adventures of the radio play you know that might that might be what's kind of rubbing people the wrong way with the film here yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was re- as I was as I was rewatching the movie, one of the things I tried to do is look at the beginning and see you know, does the beginning of the movie try to prime audiences to, to and set expectations? You know, d- does it prepare audiences and let them know that this is more a series of adventures and not some grand epic science fiction Star Wars adventure? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I thought it was a bit mixed. The, the beginning of the Dolphins, I actually love. I think that's brilliant, where the Dolphins are, you know, the Broadway musical number and so long. Thanks for all the fish. Um, and that kind of starts to prepare audiences, I think, for something a bit quirky and odd and maybe you know, prime audiences not to maybe take this too seriously or think about it too logically. 
but that was before um, the title um, appears on the screen. And once you get past the title, you have this pretty normal, uh, pretty normal situation for a movie. Guy faces this challenge. Um, friend tries to help him out. So I could understand how some audiences might then think, oh, we're back in a normal movie. We're expecting a, a, a fairly cohesive narrative. And then the narrator interjects every once in a while with these these quotes from the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. So I could understand how maybe the movie, almost, it almost feels like the movie didn't commit one way or the other. It could have either committed to a very uh, heavy, uh, well-structured narrative or it could have really committed to this quirky, odd, episodic uh, uh, non-structure. But it almost took this middle path, which I don't think, which maybe didn't prepare audiences well enough. Yeah, I think I, I think that you're right. There's like this middle path that they took, but I'd say visually, like the the bringing the guy to life in the visual way that they did is something. And I don't watch a lot of movies, but for me, that's something that's very different uh, from movies. So even if you have a narrator that interjects every once and now and again, you know, thinking about Princess Bride or something like that, yeah. um, which is a little bit more normal for moviegoers. I think the visual nature of a Hitchhiker's Guide, you know, not just having it in the opening, you know, five minutes, but having it come back and keep on showing you those, um, like hearing the voice, seeing the book, that sort of thing, um, did kind of pull you back to that quirkiness and kind of, you know, show audiences that this is something a little bit different. Um, that was for me, at least. Yeah, I think I think that worked to some extent. Although I was also wondering, and I and again, I'm I'm not sure I've made my own mind up about this, but um, I noticed that sometimes when the guide interjects, the interjection is is quite on point with the plot. It's it's highly relevant. And it's, it's it's informing the audience. It's clear exposition, and then at other points, it's not, and it seems like a tangent. Um, and I was just kind of curious if, if that if that mix works. You know, I I, like I noticed and. For one of them, the uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the name of this planet, Feel Val Six, where they find Hamakluva. Um, there, surprisingly, I don't think was very much Hitchhiker's. If I recall correctly, there wasn't very much Hitchhiker's Guide exposition on that. There was no entry on that planet, even though that's something even book readers might not be as familiar with, um, and, which I thought was surprising. And that whole part is new. Yeah. And not only new, but I believe was not Douglas Adams. That was part of, of Carrie Kirkpatrick's adding the middle, the, the middle bit that was missing, yeah. um, which might be like, maybe it's as simple as that. Like they mm -hmm. just didn't think like, Oh, we should, we should write a new, yeah. you know, Hitchhiker's Guide entry for this. Cause, cause all of the Hitchhiker's Guide entries are pretty much verbatim. I was just going to say that yeah. all of the version. Absolutely. I believe um, at least the ones that we get. I mean, there might be ones that, you know, obviously weren't included in the film. Yeah, mm -hmm. but no, um, I, I'm 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 pretty sure that 100 percent of the things Stephen Fry says in the film are 100 percent directly from mm -hmm. the book. Yeah. I don't. I mean, there, there's, so there's, so maybe that was like the line. That's all. Right. Like maybe that was the the sort of sacrosanct line they wouldn't cross, yeah. right? Like, right. you know, we can we can touch the story, we can modify things, we can 
you know, change the inflection or change who says certain things, but we're not going to write anything from the actual guide that's not, you know, Douglas Adams like words. At least in so one iron- of the versions. Ironically, so ironically the guide can't be revised then. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, and I, and I feel like I feel like it could have used more of it. That there's, I think yeah. that would have lended some more of the kind of anarchy that you feel of, you know, the and maybe some of what's missing when people, when, when as we're talking about, like maybe it was a little too structured. Maybe it was a little too like, okay, we're going to only bring in the guide when it's relevant to the story and it's going to give you valuable exposition that you need as a viewer. Like maybe there could have been a little more you know, divorce from the necessity of when are we going to bring in the guide? And, you know, because I think when you read the the novel, it feels more just ubiquitous that like, it's going to break in at any point to give you completely random things that, you know, that you have to figure out how it's useful or relevant or even if it is at all. Yeah. I mean, there Okay, a couple of things that I was thinking about with this because we spent a lot of time talking about this in the in the Mythgard Academy class on the book, and yeah. so two things. One, I was kind of interested in the fact I like the effect, especially the visual effect. You know, Curtis, as you were talking about before, the little graphics that they did in conjunction with the with the Stephen Fry bits in the film, um, because I I, so I I kind of like the fact that they seem to be creating the overall effect of you are watching this story, but it's, it's like as if you, the movie viewer, have your copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide with, to which you occasionally refer, you know, as things come up in the film. It's not quite like that because there are many of the ones, some of the sequences aren't linked directly like that. You know, as for instance, inside the narrative, right, when uh, when Ford tells Arthur to look up Vogons, right, and he looks up Vogons and we get the Vogon thing uh, in, you know, on the screen with the graphics and everything in Stephen Fry's voice, right? Um, and then there are other occasions, of course, when the characters are not looking something up in the book. The fact that the characters didn't refer to the book very often at all was one of the things that kind of surprised me, actually. Um, the book played a much smaller role within the narrative itself uh, uh, with the characters than I expected. But um, but the thing that the, and this was probably overall and this is kind of a very, you know, nitpicky thing. Well, I don't know if it's nitpicky, idiosyncratic, perhaps I should say. But the thing that, that I disliked most about the film, actually, of everything was the what seemed to me merely confused, not not an adaptation, not a change but a mere confusion about the narrative perspective of the book. We spend a lot of time in the Mythgard Academy class talking about this, that the narrator is clearly not the guide, right? And even some of the passages that they included, that was manifestly clear. I like the passage, for instance, that talks about the guide, right? And, and why it's better selling than, you know, the Encyclopedia Galactica. That just... You can tell from everything that's being said and how it's being said that that is not a quotation from the guide. And so there were and, the, and there were a couple instances like that where we're getting what is from the book directly from the book, but it's the voice of the narrator in the book, which is very clearly different for, and distinguished uh, from the voice of the you know from quotations from the guide itself. Um, and yet they're being kind of 
you know, hodgepodged together. And I'm, I'm, I'm meant to expect, as I was instructed in the opening credits, I was instructed that Stephen Fry was playing the guide, right? So everything Stephen Fry says is meant to be the guide, and it obviously wasn't the guide. And I was ready for that to be... When I saw that in the opening credits... I was like, ah, okay, so uh, they're making a change, right? They're, they're getting rid of the narrator, and they're just going to frame it with a guide, which I think is a perfectly defensible kind of thing to do. But then in the out, it, it, the actual product seemed to be kind of a mere confusion, and I'm not sure. It was not obvious to me that they were really thinking about the difference between the narrator and the guide at all, and, and I so I found myself... Uh, sort of confused and and sort of disappointed by the way that they engaged with that whole thing. Yeah, I, I had the same feeling. I think because having been so sensitive to it, going through yeah. the you know Academy videos of you know, I don't think that certainly didn't occur to me the first time I saw this movie. But once you go through and you realize that these really are separate characters, it becomes pretty glaring when you know, Stephen Fry is kind of just doing both at the same time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, every time Stephen Fry uses the phrase Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm like, it's breaking the frame. I can't handle it. Like, it's not going to be in the Hitchhiker's Guide, is it? It's not, the Hitchhiker's Guide is not going to say, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide, space is, and I'm like, no, just, (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Um, they should have just, they could have done it. They could have just cut to that, right? You know, when they are popped out of the airlock or fall through the airlock somehow, which I suppose I shouldn't object to since when spaceships come to a stop, they make tire screeching noises. So why should we object to people falling in space? But, uh, but in any case, uh, when they fall through. Well, it's, it's the outrush of the air. They're, they're going with the. Right. Clearly. When they fall through the airlock, he could have, Stephen Fry could have just said, space is really big, right? Just start with the actual quotation from the introduction yeah. to the Hitchhiker, instead of telling us that it's from the introduction to the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, anyway, but yeah, so, but like I say, I, I don't, I don't think that that's uh, necessarily something that would probably bother the majority of film viewers, but... I was a little disappointed with how they resolved or failed to resolve that. Well, they could have especially done that because when we were talking about the visuals, like they had the visuals. So even if they were worried about, um, oh, maybe the audiences wouldn't get that. Now the, the, it's the guy that's talking. Well, they have the visuals. They could have done something and it yeah. would have been very obvious. Yeah. 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 There, there's the moment before the whoosh. Uh, <laughs> right. Stop right there. Right. Um, I, I think just from a, Without agreeing with everything you just said about the narration and 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 all of that, I think that's a hilarious thing that happens when they fall instead of mm-hmm. getting sucked out through the door. <laughs> Clearly, that they expect to be sucked yes, out and, that they're staring and are drawing at our attention to. Um, to me, that's just one of the funniest moments <laughs> in the film. Um, at, at least one of the funniest like nonverbal moments in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. But not to just just so that everyone could get the visual there. Um, but not to uh, whoops discount the. Uh, well, that's the that's the kind of joke you can only do in a film, right? Just like yeah. the the joke that you know Corey pointed out the um, the audio you know the audio jokes about like what uh, 
what song is Marvin playing, you know, in any yes. given scene. Like, yes. those are, like, radio jokes. <laughs> right. Like, there are certain jokes that are sort of essential to each <laughs> medium. Yes. Knock it off, Marvin, and he stops playing also Sprock Zarathustra in the background. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right, right. <laughs> right like that's, that's a radio joke. That, yes. There's a reason that that doesn't make it into the book. Um, yeah. So they all kind of come with certain inherent qualities like that. Well, and I like under that same vein. I like when they, you know, show up in the Heart of Gold and they're transformed into different, like you know, the kind of claymation, mm. you know, like just those purely visual moments that you know I think to me feel like, you know, it communicates that they're thinking about this is a visual medium. How do we adapt this? That's in a way different than the novel. I actually liked those sequences much better in the film than I did in the book actually. The, I think the the sequences of the description of random stuff happening when they are in the improbability mode are my least favorite parts of the book actually. Um, I, I mean, I find some of it kind of funny but I find a lot of it kind of tedious. It was it was much more interesting. Um, like, I'd, I'd, I'd like the yarn people way more than I liked any of those scenes in the in the book, actually. Yeah. That's really confusing in the book, reading it. I was a, like, I was a kid and I was just like, uh-huh. <laughs> sure, right. like, go with right. it. <laughs> I, I right? And it, it does make me wonder, like, is that because it was a movie joke? Like, Douglas Adams had this in his head. It's like, to him, it's funny. He can see what he's, but like, there's really only one way to communicate it, and that's visually. Yeah. I don't remember which reviewer said it, but like, one of one of the less favorable reviews that I read was lamenting the fact that we don't get to see, you know, Ford Prefect as a penguin. And I'm like, yeah, but you see him as a yarn person. Like, that's so much <laughs> and better. That's so much um, better. And a sofa. Like, <laughs> and a sofa. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, I know what a penguin looks like. I don't know what yarn Ford Prefect looks like. Um, I guess, I mean, I could figure it out. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think those are those are pretty great, too. And in the – I didn't I – I think – I don't know if I – I can't remember if I mentioned this already. I only watched, like, the first two episodes of the TV series. But they actually do – like, you. there's actually, like, the, the overlay of, like, the leg floating into the sunset, like they describe in, in the book. And it's like, okay. You know that's fine. Like, I still prefer the iron people, and you know the, you know all the the couches and and whatnot. Um, so the the other thing, um, kind of talking through narrative structure and all that, and and I mean, you know, we did decide that I guess that it does have more of a narrative structure than some of the versions, but maybe not as much as uh, you know other movies. Okay, that's fine. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, But I was also thinking, like, if if you think of, like, the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of this film, like, how much of it is sort of that um, fairy tale uh, induction, I guess, into, uh, you know, thinking of, like, if the galaxy is sort of the perilous realm and Mm -hmm. Ford Prefect is kind of a, a elf of some kind that, you know, takes Arthur there with, you know, the use of a magic ring, you know, on his finger, like, you know, how much of the things that sort of happen to him are just like these sort of magical things that would happen to, you know, anyone else if we were reading this as a fairy story and, you know, all the improbable things that happen in, you know, the land of fairy, you know, right. that right. 
that we're getting here um, with just sort of some trappings of a, of a more sci-fi context. I think it's a. And there's the link. I'm I'm sure there are people who could take that analogy even way further than I just did. No, Um, I think, and I think it's a really good one actually. And it strikes me that that is much more true. I mean, you know, as I was just thinking about it, Curtis, as you were talking, um, thinking about the story, thinking of Arthur as your fairy tale hero, right? Your fairly typical normal like woodcutter right who you know goes into the woods and ends up in fairy or like jack and jack and the beanstalk right um it it does it does have that kind of structure i wouldn't have said that i I mean i think if somebody were trying to convince me that the book had that kind of fairy tale structure i think i would disagree basically it's it's i mean it certainly it gets weird. There, there is, of course, a sense in which he goes into another world, but it's not, it's not the same thing. It, it, it doesn't happen. It, it, it doesn't really happen in the same way. And to me, one of the things that the film about the film that makes it more fairy tale like um, is that they he comes back at the end, right, with the second Earth. Um, I think of all the things. That's what I was most surprised by. You know, like moments that where somebody says something in the film when I saw it for the first time and I was like, wait, what? What? Uh, the thing that surprised me most, I think, was when Slarty Bartfast at the end says, yeah, we're going to go ahead and make the Earth. And I'm like, what, you are? Really? <laughs> okay. And, 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 and the way that they brought Arthur back to his house, at you know, at which, you know, so that we, we he returns. Uh, the way that they made, uh, and of course this is uh, especially ironic in the Martin Freeman context, how they made Arthur Dent's story into a there and back again story, right? Um, that was, I was, I was surprised by that, and so, and so Curtis, that definitely for me made it feel much more like that kind of fairy tale structure. The fact that he ret- he was he was offered a return to normality again, to use the vocabulary of the improbability drive, right? Um, get, making the improbability drive itself a kind of like internal metaphor for Arthur's whole experience, right? He 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 returns to normality at the end, and then of course chooses to reject it, right? And to to accept and to embrace the adventurous world that he turned down in the form of Madagascar, you know, with Trillian at the beginning, um, you know, through his own unwillingness to, 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 to do that. Anyway, so the way that they showed, even just again, the, the way they showed kind of the progress in Arthur's character, um, how he becomes this sort of heroic figure, right, with the rescue at Vogsphere and, 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 and everything else, and then of course his, you know, the, the alteration how he chooses not to stay uh, when uh, he's given the chance to, to, to come back again at the end of the film. Um, so I actually, I, I, I think the, the sort of the you know, the fairy other world story and the way, you know, the, the way that the the human being who is, you know, taken off into fairy uh, and how his life has changed and all that stuff. Um, I think that how that stuff works in the film is to me much more striking than in any other adaptation that I can think of. It's, um, uh, the, again, he goes off in the book, but it's more of a, and now for something completely different kind of transition rather than a, you know, human in the land of fairy sort of thing. 
Yeah, I'll jump in there. Um, I <laughs> I wrote a rather long paper about this, <laughs> um, but you can all go read if you look up the Signum University thesis page on the website. Um, and so, in one of the other slides. Curtis quotes Roger Ebert's review where he says, like, it's, you know, this movie is first cousin to Monty Python. So I, I kind of think, like, if Douglas Adams is related to Monty Python on one side, he's very closely related to Doctor Who on the other. And I, I felt the the Python-ness more in the book, where um, it's more about the... To me, like the the narration of both the narrator and the guide, and the kind of like wordiness of it, and the kind of jokes and the you know cynical little puns and commentaries, to me are much more closely aligned with you know that being the overriding kind of Python sense. Whereas from the film, for me, the Doctor Who ness came through much more strongly, and I think it is because of that that fairy tale structure, that kind of, you know, recursive there and back again, where we, you know, make a journey where we end up where we began, but in a different place because of what you've gone through. Right. Um, so and then there's another, there's another thing on that quote of, about its relationship to Dr. Who in that episodic way that we were talking about of the series of random adventures. Um, I was reading an essay from this book by Phil Sandifer, um, his Chartist Eruditorum series, where he writes an essay about uh, the late 70s Doctor Who, but specifically in relation to Hitchhiker's Guide and Faulty Towers. So he's talking about the relationship between Douglas Adams, Monty Python, and Doctor Who, basically, and kind of saying that um, the structure of the Hitchhiker's Guide is basically a Doctor Who story, but specifically you know, Terry Nation was an early writer of the show and kind of was the one to kind of really create this series of capture, escape, capture, escape with periods of in-between where we rest and we have some exposition and we do this thing and then we go on another adventure and we get captured again and then we talk about it and then we go off over here and that's just kind of how it goes from episode to episode. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think it's kind of, Adams has kind of one foot in each of those camps of kind of 70s British culture. Yeah, yeah. And Kat, I mean, you're right. I hadn't been thinking about that. But of course, when you were talking about the the parallel there, the, the parallel between Arthur in the film in particular um, and the Doctor's companions is 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 pretty strong, right? You know the the way in which his perspective is changed by being taken off and shown the wonders of the of the universe really does make. I mean, he's no Sarah Jane Smith, but you know he's he's in that position, right? And and I that parallel does seem does seem pretty striking. Um, uh, Tony Mead was asking uh, then who's the Doctor? You know, if Arthur's the companion, because uh, that that of course is one of the major differences, right? Is that there is no there is no doctor figure exactly, um, and what does that what effect does that have on the story, right? You know, to 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 have a story where you're the structure is similar, but you have a compa- <laughs> you have a companion, but you have but you have no doctor, or in the place of a doctor, we have this. 
you know, just couple of crazy people who don't really know what they're doing at all, even crazier than the doctor, right? With even less of an idea of what they're doing than the doctor. The one, one, and I'm not an expert on fairy tale structure, so feel free to push back on this, but one possible difference I see, and, and less so in the film than in the book, is that um, we, it, it, this feels much more like a story of, because the framing device and because the Hitchhiker's Guide, of placing the audience in this crazy galaxy of the Hitchhiker's Guide and then bringing Arthur Dent into that galaxy rather than starting in the, in the mundane world with Arthur Dent and going to the perilous realm with him. And throughout the story, we actually, as the reader or as the viewer, know much more than Arthur, De- Arthur Dent. And my understanding is in a, in a lot of fairy tales, usually the reader or the viewer learns about the world along with the, the protagonist, along with yeah. the person who's been transported in the fairy. And here, it's, it's it, we, we know a lot more, even even as Arthur Dent learns, we learn exponentially more than he does. So that seems to be one difference that might complicate this bit. Right. Well, and, and there, of course, the guide itself, the Stephen Fry, you know, voiceover, is the biggest mm-hmm. difference, right? I mean, from the very yeah. beginning, from the dolphin sequence, at the beginning, right? You know, the the film opens with sort of pulling back the curtain on a perspective on the world that most humans don't have in which Arthur... So, yeah. so we begin by knowing that humans are the third most intelligent species on planet Earth, which puts us in a complete... from a Looking at things from a totally different perspective, or rather at least hinting at a totally different perspective uh, than mm-hmm. Arthur has. So you're absolutely right, Dominic, and, and it, both about the observation about uh, uh, fairy tale... Uh, structure that yes, generally we are, you know, walking alongside the human protagonist of the story and um, finding things wonderful and marvelous as the protagonist is finding them. Um, and so, yeah, but it's it's the guide. I would say it's the guide that really puts us. Uh, the scene when because of that, the scene when when Ford gives Arthur the book for the first time and and starts yeah. showing him stuff. Um, or you know, letting him look things up, it's almost like we get the feeling of of been uh, there, done that. Yeah, of like Arthur's slowly catching up to us, right? Yeah. You know, he's now finally getting access. You know, he's several steps behind. And even, of course, what happens immediately after that? What happens immediately after that is the Babelfish, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, Ford trying to shove the Babelfish in his ear, and while Arthur is kicking and screaming, you know, uh, uh, you know, like a like a bad pediatric patient, uh, while Ford is trying to jam the the. Uh, the fish in his ear, we're hearing the voiceover dis- explaining what the Babel fish is, right? So we, as re- you know, so we know all about this, whereas Arthur is just ignorantly kicking up a fuss, right? Not wanting to get the fish shoved in his ear. Um, so I, I'm just thinking of that, Dominic, as another example of exactly what you're, what you're describing of that, uh, that gap in understanding between us and our, and Arthur, where Arthur is, is so much further behind. So um, we had, I had shown this slide briefly before, but I did want to talk. So, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about some of the um, visual cues and changes, but just a couple other things. Um, and we don't have to like stick specifically to the scenes that I have depicted here, but 
you know, besides sort of like the, the yarn people and the improbability stuff and sort of the, the visual humor from, uh, you know, like the airlock scene or, or, or any others, um, were there any other sort of striking moments? These, these were ones, obviously, for me, um, the depiction of Zephod Beeblebrox. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, again, ones who are more familiar with maybe uh, like the television series or whatever, didn't like the the way the heads, you know, came kind of up and down instead of were like side to side. Um, also, I, I, I liked that. I thought it was clever and, and I thought it worked pretty well, actually. Um, and also for the the scene uh, of the destruction of the earth, where it's kind of just like the the and then it's gone, like more more than like an explosion, you know, planet like Death Star exploding type of right. thing. It that felt to me more true to the source material than yes. than any other kind of thing um, that maybe could have been done there. Um, but yeah, I mean, these were just starting points. Any other particular like from a visual perspective um and, whether it's yeah. a reference to the original story or, or a completely new thing that you guys in enjoyed disliked vein, or whatever in that same vein too i i don't know that we have a slide specifically about like performances but i'd be curious to hear people's thoughts on that because i know um that some of these performances are are better received than others so i'm curious <laughs> Why might that be? You know, what is it that um, certain people are tapping into that works really well and others might are, you know, might not be quite getting the vibe right? I remember when there's, I said there's a quote about performance for you. Ah. Oh, there you go. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I remember um, Marvin being really striking to me as a robot mm -hmm. that very, I mean, we're like the, the, image of a robot that people think of is still like the square head and the square body and everything like that. And he's got this big bulbous head. Um, and I think that that's kind of striking when you pair that with, um, uh, with the actor voice, which I'm failing on remembering right now. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Um, that I didn't know that, but yeah, um, it's just so, so good. And so visually you have this, um, this robot with, such a big personality, uh, GPP, and uh, and you have Alan Rickman behind it, and I just thought it was just fantastically done uh, for me. Really and it kind of it kind of forces him to walk like this. Yeah, like there's like that head must be like heavy. It like yeah, makes yeah. him kind of shuffle around. And... I feel like the, the the hanging your head when you just feel slowed down. Like you you imagine it just being pulled to the yeah. ground with that sort of weight of the head. And at the same time. He walks like a he walks like a four year old, right? You know, I mean, he looked adorable. Like it, it evokes the body language of a child, right? Which, to me, I, that that really changed my like relationship with Marvin, right? Uh, and I noticed, by the way, that they they the other characters were much less harsh with Marvin than they were in the book. Um, mm. I mean, there, there was a certain amount of eye rolling, right, and and a few comments, but nothing. I thought nothing like as uh, as harsh as in the book. Um, uh, yeah, I I did. Um, I wasn't. 
Okay, th- this feels almost like blasphemous to say, but I didn't like Alan Rickman as Marvin. I mean, I, like you can't say you don't like Alan Rickman, right? But it's not. So I will try to recover that comment merely by saying he's too good for Marvin. Like his voice is too interesting. Marvin needed to have a duller voice. Like I wanted more. Yes. Don't talk to me about life. Like, Rick, Alan Rickman can't, could could not do a colorless tone of voice. Like, his voice is incapable of doing colorless. Right? It can be many things, but not just a drone. Which is what which is what Marvin I think should kind of sound like. You know, just kind of droning on. And I mean, we're talking about the the robot who bored another computer so badly that it committed suicide, right? And it's like, I, you know, who would ever commit suicide listening to Alan Rickman? I mean, if you're listening to Alan Rickman, you'd be like, no, go on forever. I can take it, right? right. Well, but but not in this version. That doesn't happen. Right, exactly. And, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe with the whole point of view gun thing, I mean, is there... Does... Alan Rickman's voice in the head of a Vogon. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's really what we should be asking ourselves. Cause that, that entire thing is just here. Like that doesn't happen. Right. right. Any, in any other version. Yeah. Um, but, uh, two Though, quick things about the that was clear, performance. Cl- that was clearly the equivalent, right? You know, the, the shooting of the Vogons yeah, yeah. with the point of view gun is, was the, right. the sort of plot stand in for the computer committing suicide. Yep. It's actually a bit of interesting behind-the-scenes stuff about Marvin and that um, Warwick Davis, the the same actor who played Wicket, the Ewok, in Return of the Jedi, did the body performance for Marvin, but Alan Rickman provided the voice. And apparently Warwick Davis has complained about this and said that he wasn't really given much direction as Marvin and that he didn't coordinate with Alan Rickman to know what was going on in the scene and what, what the voiceover would sound like. So that's so apparently there were there were some communication issues between the two. Yeah. Um, Mike Moore in the chat is agreeing with you, Corey. He's calling Marvin faintly bitchy, which is not exactly. It's not. It's in the ballpark, but it's not an exact match uh, for what yeah, the not novel an exact match. Yeah. are actually depressed. Yes. Right. Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about the robot is. Um, if you're looking for the more more boxy robot Marvin that maybe would be expected, um, the one from the TV series is actually uh, an Easter egg in the scene where they're on the Bogon planet. And, um, you know, Arthur Dent knows how to queue, right? And so he gets in the mm-hmm. queue. The, the, the boxy robot in the queue there with him is the uh, robot from the original TV series. <laughs> uh, so if, if you want to compare... Um, yeah, that's cool. So speaking of that, Arthur, you know, Arthur's British and he knows how to cue. How about having most of the other main characters be American? Mm -hmm. I mean, it certainly makes Arthur's Britishness much more a characteristic of him Mm -hmm. and less so of the entire population of the galaxy that he's meeting. Um, Having Zaphod be American, I thought was a brilliant choice. Just having the, the, the dumb, over-the-top American. I don't. I don't. I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I. I think anything said in a British accent sounds ten times smarter than anything said in an American accent. So I just don't think that character would have worked as well with a Tony Blair accent. Um, 
So I, I, good, good job for that one. I, and I read in one of somewhere in in the research for all this, um, yeah, that that basically Sam Rockwell took uh, Clinton, George W. and Elvis yeah. as his like three uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. people he was trying to emulate on screen there, <laughs> mashing them all together. Um, and I, I mean, yeah, it, it worked really well. Um, I also read somewhere that um, the only character that Douglas Adam demanded be British, which makes sense, is Arthur. And mm-hmm. that he thought that it would be fine to have. Now, whether they needed to all be American is a different question. Like, you know, maybe there could have been a little more diversity there. Um, nationality, culturally, ethnically, um, all of that. But uh, at, at least the Britishness of Arthur Dent was never questioned. And from there, even he apparently felt like it was okay to mix and match a bit. Um, personally, I'm a little... I think um, most deaf as Ford Prefect works really well sometimes, and then just other times. is it, It's very uneven, yes. um, I feel like. Um, yeah. Especially his pronunciation of Bogans, right? Like <laughs> the, the Bogans. <laughs> it's like, all right, Ford. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, I I, uh, I agree. Un- uneven. I thought uh, was that's a good description of. Uh, of Ford. I, I mean, again, so, like my favorite ones are maybe maybe the the little bit more slapsticky type stuff or or more physical comedy, like the you know trying to greet the car rushing at him or. Um, even here, like the, the, the sort of like very slow, like just putting his hand on the shoulder and like, um, or, or even when he hugs Arthur, like trying to reassure him and it's just that quick, like, okay, I, I reassured you now we're done. Like, um, those types of things I thought worked really well. If, if I'm trying to think about what I liked about the performance and then, yeah, anytime he was just sort of like trying to explain information or give away. And it's hard to say if that's performance or script or, or whatever, like maybe there's just, it wasn't written well or whatever. Um, I think in my view, as far as, as far as Ford prefect goes, there was, there was some really good moments and some, you know, ones that didn't work quite as well. Well, I, I've, uh, I've promised Arthur who's here tonight and who wanted me to talk about this in the class that we'd talk about it tonight. And he's been, he's been bringing it up and I want to make sure we do it. Trillion. Shocking. Arthur objects to Trillion quite strongly. Uh, he thinks that, uh, uh, he, he, he's in the comments, he's been calling, uh, Trillian, uh, the Faramir of this film, uh, in that, you know, she's the one that, uh, he, that he feels has been done most wrong, uh, in this depiction. Um, and you know, the argument is so, you know, he was emphasizing how, you know, in the book, for instance, that phrase, and we talked about this a little bit, um, how uh, Adams uses the phrase devastatingly brilliant, right? Um, beginning with a phrase that sounds like it's going, he's going to talk about her physical attraction, right? I mean, but then instead he's talking about her mind um, as a way of kind of undermining that. Um, uh, Arthur was talking about how in the original TV series, Trillian is generally scantily dressed, so you know they they go with this sort of eye candy uh, sort of uh, look for her, but she still is brainy and intelligent, and and, and whereas 
they, uh, uh, Arthur was suggesting he thought in this film they really kind of dumbed her down and just made her into the romantic interest, which, you know, brings out the best in Arthur rather than being, you know, a, a substantial and strong character on her own. Um, what do you guys think of that? How, what kind of reactions did you guys have to Trillian in particular? And do you think, you know, do you agree with Arthur that she, she's been done wrong and, and, uh, you know, been, uh, taken a, sort of knocked a few, a few steps back the, the, you know, the, the, the path of feminism here in this film or, or, or what? I, I do agree. Um, I, I think it could have been a lot worse. Um, but I think they did do damage. They, she, she's sort of in this film, she's sort of more wanderlust than anything else. Um, which is fine. But when you take a character that is so brilliant and can command a ship and drive a ship, um, and, and kind of, you know, I think her agency is a little bit stripped away and she's kind of portrayed as this woman who chose the wrong guy and now she's on a ship with him. And what do I do? Um, as opposed to someone who is a little bit more regretful in the book, um, and uh, and one that actually, I mean, she's the one who pushes the probability improbability uh, drive right when they're falling to Megathria, and in this in the film, it's Arthur, correct? Yeah, actually, it's Arthur in the book too. It's Arthur in the book too. Yeah, okay, it is Arthur in the I book thought, too. Okay, okay, so I had that wrong, but but there is this other moments that in the book she kind of demonstrates how intelligent she is. And I don't think you got that in the film, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. I thought that Zoe Deschanel's performance kind of fell a little flat for me as well. Um, certainly when you're across, across Martin Freeman, it's very, I mean, it's very difficult because he's such a stellar actor. Um, but it, yeah, I just, it fell a little flat for me. I agree, but I'm also, I also think a lot of it is a, a consequence of uh, what we were talking about before, where, uh, the writers tried to impose more of a narrative structure. And once you decide to give Arthur Dent a clear narrative arc, a clear clear arc in this movie, well, what are you going to do? It, mean, it means that you have to give Arthur more agency and you know probably take that away from other characters. And um, they probably could have come up with something more interesting and more original than he has to go save the princess. But like it, that is kind of a typical go-to... Hollywood formula for narrative. So um, I kind of suspect Trillian got more. Trillian's character was sacrificed on the altar of this of this narrative push more than anything else. I just think if this movie was made today, it would be different. I, I, I like to think that, and I, I do think that to a certain extent, a lot of a lot of it would be different. But I think that they wouldn't have made maybe the same mistakes they did with Trillian's character um, in two thousand eighteen. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it's interesting because on the one hand, she is like the changes that they make. Uh, you know, Kelly, I really agree with what you're saying. And, and uh, as Mike is saying in the comments here, um, he said they celebrate her quirkiness instead of her competence. And I, I agree. I, you know, I think that that's 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 also true. But at the same time, of course, she doesn't get much stage time in the book. I mean, she vanishes for long periods. She's the most minor 
she's irrelevant to so much of what happens in the story. And especially once they get to Magrathea, she's along for the ride. Does she contribute one single original? I mean, she, she makes some comments sometimes, usually cutting comments to Zephod, but um, so it's not like she has no dialogue. But I don't think she contributes anything independent to the action at any point from when they arrive at Magrathea onwards. She's just, again, she's just kind of along. Um, so, although conceptually she is, you know, very intelligent and very competent, all that stuff, and I agree that's that's all true, she she's almost a cipher as far as the story is concerned for much of the book. Whereas here, yes, it's true, she's made... You know, curious but not intelligent. Not you know, not intelligent. She's made the object of action instead of the doer of action, and yet she's a central element of the story, which she was not a central element of the story. You know, um, so I, I, you know, to some extent, it's kind of interesting. You know, and, and you know, and Kelly, I think you know, maybe it comes back to what you were saying about sort of they chose to do something with her character, right? It's just the question of what exactly it was that they chose to do. And what they chose to do was to make her, uh, you know, as Arthur was suggesting also, it's just a fairly stereotypical love interest, basically. Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of same pitfall that the Hobbit movies did when you have the the, the elf. Um, and sure, now you have a female character that right. um, can shoot arrows, great but she falls into just being the love interest. So we have a woman on screen, yay, but, you know, not done in a way that really she deserves. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, you also have that very odd romance between her and Zaphod and then her and Arthur and the whole, um, the whole uh, point of view gun subplot and how uh, they, hid, they hid the destruction of Earth from her and then she was emotionally devastated Then. And she, for some reason, jumps into Arthur's arms at the end. Uh, it, again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about the narrative, where they wanted to impose more of a narrative structure, but they didn't really commit to it. So it's like we didn't really get a we didn't really get a well developed love story. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think in the book, if I'm not mistaken, Trillian's Trillian by the end is like, yeah, I don't really want either of you guys. I'm going to go do my own thing, which. Um, you know, kind of seems like a more natural conclusion given, you know, what she's been through. Um, I'm kind of wondering, this is, maybe we don't have to take this up, but if this were made today and we were adapting this, should Ford Prefect have been a female character? Just to, if we wanted to introduce more female characters into the movie and do something different. I'm just wondering, is there any reason he has to be a male and might that, like, have added, changed up the dynamic in some interesting ways? Well, you know what wasn't just, and I don't this kind of um, goes off of your question, but doesn't answer it. Um, they did kind of create. Uh, I mean, the um, deep thought was a female voice, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, and and so were the um, the two mice. The mice, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and then they had that vice president, who is another. You know, it turns out yeah. her whole character arc was love interest. She had, fell in love with Zephod, and right, yeah, yeah. This but, like, they, I thought obsession. Them, with Zephyr. She's like a stalker. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. Yeah. Well, right, and that I mean, and that was completely unnecessary. It was yeah, like, yes. oh, you know, now that Trillian is, you know, not an option for Zephyr because she chose Arthur, we need some other woman to kind of step in. Like, 
like yeah. it would have been much more interesting if and I can't think of even the character's name but the vice president there was just like it's my duty to go after and I command this fleet of Vogons and, and I'm like the second in command in the galaxy you know going after Zaphod because he stole you know this ship and that's like that's the thing she does like she's a smart and capable you know commander of the army and not I'm chasing after him because you know he's attractive and whatever like it could have been a very different subplot um, yeah I and, mean, I, and would have didn't need anything, to be what to, it was yeah I agree I mean if anything to me from from that sort of a you know representation of women as uh, almost exclusively sexual objects that subplot, the vice president subplot, I found more offensive than what they yeah, did with, with Trillian. Oh, oh, oh. Um, yeah. What they did with Trillian was kind of more of a violation in that way, more of a deviation from the other versions of Trillian that we've seen. But yeah, that one I was, I, it was, I, I had a really hard time with the vice president character. The one thing that I will say, I, I mean, I, you know, I was just looking at the, the, the image of Trillian that you have up there, uh, Curtis, um, I will give them props at least for not having having Trillian emphatically uh, non scantily clad all the way through the film. Or, you know, even like at, yeah. at the beginning where she's wearing the shorts and goes and puts something on. Right, you know, she's almost scantily clad. It's yeah. not even all that scanty by film standards, right? But then she immediately goes and puts on more clothes and wears them for the whole rest of the film. Right, that was it. it we do get the shower scene, I know, <laughs> but still, by and large, it was it was. Uh, Given the fact that she was transformed into this, you know, romantic and sexual object, I was slightly surprised that she was not more visually sexualized during the course of the film. But even even that, I was, I I remember thinking the second time through watching this, like, like why is she that bothered? I mean, she has shorts and they're short shorts, but it's not like like you said, like it's not like she's walking around in underwear or something or right. you know what like yeah. like why is she that concerned because arthur's there like it, it, without the whole romantic subplot it Maybe just seemed like casual versus like uniform Maybe. Um, like it like for me i saw that as kind of like a cute moment of her being like well he's here oh oh my gosh i'm like in the pajamas which is really funny because he's in his pajamas the whole time <laughs> right sure <laughs> right um Oh, uh, one thing I wanted to mention, too, um, and actually had a brief Twitter exchange right before um, we were signing on. Um, as far as visual depictions go, um, there are no digital watches uh, in here. Um, yes. But um, one thing uh, that I did see and did notice is that um, right in the beginning, I don't it, it's like the rest of the movie. It's inconsistent. Um, he does spend a lot of time looking at his phone. And so um, it seems like almost maybe that could have been a stand-in um, for the whole digital watch thing, which is interesting because I, I stumbled across a... Um, it, it was at some point, uh, I think, when, when um, Douglas Adams was corresponding with the U.S., editor of, of the U.S. version of one of the books. I don't even know if it was the original one. Um, and the editor had changed references 
of digital watches to cell phones. This was like in the early 90s. And Douglas Adams was like, no, we're not doing that. We're keeping it with digital watches. It's still relevant and whatever. Um, and I mean, this is, you know, the early 2000s here. Like we're not, it's it's before, you know, the Facebook and all the, the smartphone uh, craze that we have now of, you know, um, constantly staring at your screen. At this point, it was only like 75% staring at your screen all the time. Um, but yeah, just just that that's one thing I noticed. I did try to find a, a scene specifically, but like his his robe covers his hand so much. Um, there's one moment though, like right in the very beginning, before he actually puts his robe on, when he's like rubbing his face, and you can see he doesn't have any digital watches right. that he's wearing there. So minor point, but well, just thought I'd mention. especially in the context though of with the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? With the with the Hitchhiker's Guide as uh, and I know this was also kind of brought up in the context of that Twitter exchange you were having, Curtis, um, that the way that our view of the Hitchhiker's Guide is kind of necessarily sort of informed in the context of uh, looking things up on your smartphone in your pocket, right? And, and how that kind of changes the whole context of uh, having the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, seeing Arthur shift from his cell phone at the beginning uh, to the Hitchhiker's Guide after he goes, right? You know, it's it, it creates this interesting new dynamic, right? Because it's like an upgrade, which is not how it is in the book, right? Because we don't have that context. So instead of just, in, instead of being taken to a completely new and, and unrecognizable world, it's like, and here's an even, you know, this is even better than your cell phone, uh, right? But it's still kind of in the same ballpark, right? It's still it's still the same sort of category. Um, yeah. I think this issue. So to what extent? Oh, go ahead, Dom. I, I just I think the the, the phone issue actually um, uh, touches upon another point I wanted to make about the film, and that it doesn't feel as outdated as as, as I thought it would be for. Film that's almost fifteen years old has, relies on a lot of special effects. Um, most of the effects held up all right. I watched this on a sixty-five inch four K TV, and I'm usually very sensitive to effects. I thought the Bogon um, costumes still look very look, look phenomenal. Um, you know, there, I, I could tell Zaphod's head was fake in a few scenes, but just switching it to phones, I think, helped in that sense. If it had been digital watches, I, the film would have come across as much more dated um so no it's, it's the film's credit that like it you know at least visually in a lot of ways it holds up like like um yeah when when we went back and and started our initial watch of and rewatch of buffy and it's you know beat me if the apop- apocalypse comes it's like yes that's far enough back that it it, it makes the it's like not to like season four or five that they actually have like flip phones and, right you know can text each other yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Like the effects I think are generally really good, mm-hmm. especially like you said, considering that the film's almost 15 years old or whatever. Um, I, I like that sustained choppy, but like intentionally so pullback from the earth, yeah. you know, yes. out, like, and, and, and giving you that grandiose scale of where they're about to head into. <laughs> Visually that sequence was my favorite. 
the whole yep. from the Vogon fleet arriving, slightly disappointed that the Vogon constructor ships were not yellow. That doesn't seem too much to ask, right? But whatever. <laughs> like I, 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 apart from the lack of yellowness, I loved that whole sequence and the backing off, and then the uh, Curtis, as you were pointing out before, the sort of anticlimactic and and really sort of uh, surprisingly non cinematic. Uh, implosion of the earth rather than a nice, you know, theatrical explosion, right? You think, like, come on, this is the mother of all explosions, right? You get to do a really big one and blow up a whole planet, but but no, no, it's just it's just zap and it's gone. I, I love that. I, I thought that that worked really, really well. Another thing I really liked about that scene, too, is that the visuals really work well in conjunction with the story and emphasizing the humor. It's not just that it pulls back and it's not that it's a choppy pullback. The music plays the dun, 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 and it tries to build up tension, but it doesn't release the tension right away. It goes for it repeats that uh, theme several more times. Yeah. So it, it has a comical effect as well, which is yeah. great. And that's one of the when the film combines the music and the visuals and comedy. That's really when it's on all four cylinders. Yeah. And instead of the you know yellow. Uh, you know, parallel, you get uh, their ships, to me, look like these awful cinder blocky high-rise office buildings. These, you know, tall rectangles that look kind of, you know, what you lose in the one comparison, it gets into, like, the bureaucracy of the Vogons and how they're, like, in even just, even their costumes with the kind of dingy suit and tie and everything, um, it still kind of gets at the same idea. Um, I love too that the people actually put bags over their heads and lay down on the floor. Mm. I I don't think in any other version we actually see that they do that. Like it's just suggested. Like should we do this? Well, if you think it'll help, that's fine. But here we actually see they do it. <laughs> that to me, I I laugh at that every time. Um, and I did want to definitely talk about the humor in Drano. I know we've talked about bits and pieces here and there. I kind of split this out. Um, so there's the, that visual humor there. Um, on the top left are just a few of the obvious, you know, uh, lines that get pulled in that are always funny in every version. Um, and they're in every version, I'm pretty sure. Um, on the bottom right, I kind of threw in some ones that I believe are unique to um, this one, uh, you know, to the film itself. And then... Um, Dom, the, the, you had shared um, just with the panelists here a, a video comparing um, some of the things, and, and the person who made that video was very upset by all the changes. And one of the things particularly that he pointed out that I thought was worth talking about um, was what he called the cringe humor, um, the, the office-type humor of um, where you have Martin Freeman, who, of course, stored in the, uh, starred in the UK version of The Office, um, you know, sort of saying, I said, all these people are idiots, right? When the music cuts out and everyone can hear him. And it's not, you know, it's not humorous in the way that's sort of like the clever Douglas Adams humor. And I think this is one of the types of things that people point to when they say Douglas Adams never would have liked this. I, I would like to see evidence that he wouldn't have liked that type of humor, I guess, because we don't really have, evidence to that before I would, you know, uh, agree with that. But um, yeah, just this sort of to represent some of the different 
funny lines, moments, visual things, different types of humor, um, slapstick stuff. The the Zephod hitting himself with all three of his arms, I laugh at. I you know maybe others don't, but I think that's funny. Um, so yeah, any any thoughts there about like other. And, and we can, I mean, if there are other visual things, too, uh, if, whether they tie into humor or not, we can keep talking about other stuff, too. I just wanted to throw in there because you had mentioned um, the humor aspect of it. So I wanted to make sure we talked about all the different types of humor um, in the film, too. Well, the flip side of my... Oh, sorry. No, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. So the flip side of the comment that I just made about the visuals and the music and everything, the movie supporting the humor, is that sometimes... They didn't, and sometimes it felt like the tent, the narrative, was intention with the humor. And in particular, mm-hmm. I felt like the the uh, the Slardy Bartfast introduction um, didn't quite work as well for me. Um, and that's in that scene, Slardy Bartfast is talking, and then reveals his name, and says uh, the, the the actor basically says, "My name is Slardy Bartfast." And during that scene, the music is playing in the background just as it would normally in any other movie. You know, there's no, there's no build up. It's not the, the, the actor doesn't build it up. Uh, and I, I, you know, it, it doesn't come, it, it doesn't hit you as much as even, even Corey's reading in one of the, uh, um, one of the classes we did. You know, there's no, my name is dun dun, you know, Slardy Barkfast and the music doesn't push that. And I, I thought that was disappointing. And there are a few other times in the movie where it just felt like this was a line said in a normal movie produced in a way that any other movie would be produced rather than finding ways to push the music and push the visuals to emphasize the humor and really do something unique with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even the fact that he, he does kind of, in a way for me, overbuild it up in that he doesn't want to say what the name, like he resists for several moments of not wanting to say what his name is, which to me kind of, undercuts the humor because you're kind of telling people okay there's a joke coming like here get ready for the punchline and then it's not as good as like it's underwhelming rather than i think when you read it this name just comes out of left field and surprises you and and catches you a little bit more off guard um so curtis i've been looking it up because i was pretty sure i remembered an example of Adams using exactly that kind of cringe humor. In okay, the book. good. And I thought of, and I, so I thought, and I, 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 I checked and I, and, and, and I'm right. It's actually very similar. Um, it's the introduction of Trillian's character when Trillian and Arthur meet for the first time. Um, he hasn't seen Trillian yet. He doesn't know that she's in the room and can hear him. And he's talking about her because he meets Zaphod and says, I always met Zaphod before. And he's just recounted, his in, his encounter with Trillian, uh, you know, saying, "Oh, she's beautiful, charming, devastatingly intelligent." At last, I'd got her to myself for a bit and was plying her with a with a bit of talk. When this friend of yours barges up and says, "Hey, doll, is this guy boring you?" Um, and then uh, and and then you know she cuts in with, "But you must admit, he did turn out to be from another planet." And now he's all embarrassed because you know he's just been talking about her and he didn't realize she was in the room. It's not the same thing as the "I said all these people are idiots" scene, but it's in the same category, I think. Yeah. yeah. The one thing about the the all these the all these people are idiots scene that doesn't quite work is the the, the office style cringe humor works when I think it works at least when 
would care about the person's relationship with the other people in the the audience, the, the recipients of that that cringeworthy comment. And in this case, we don't. Trillian and Arthur are the only people we care about in that scene. We, we don't even know who any of those other party guests are. They never come up, and so. And yeah, there's 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 some inherent embarrassment when when you say if you say something like that at a party and other people overhear you, but it's not as powerful as say somebody in an office with his coworkers saying something bad about the coworkers and knowing that he'll have to interact with them every day and you know have to live down that embarrassing situation. Right. Sure. Yeah, I mean I, another comment that I think I I saw a number of people who are critical about the humor is, is the slapstick um, more type of slapstick stuff, which of, by nature is visual. Like you, like you can't really do slapstick in a, I, I mean, you could try to do it in a book, but it wouldn't work that well. Maybe you could have some funny um, sounds in a, in a radio play, but it's not the same thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if, you know, Monty Python is a second cousin here. I mean, they literally do a sketch where they're just slapping each other with fish and people are laughing at it. So like, I, you know, I don't think that that's terribly uh, just in the, in the broader realm of like English humor and stuff. I don't think that's outside of the sort of things that um, maybe would be enjoyable to Douglas at. You know, those, um, those little face slappy things on Vogsphere. Right, that mm. come up out of the sand and smack them in the face. That's one of the things a lot of people don't like, yeah, apparently. See, I didn't like it at first either, and then they kept at it, and I kept liking it worse. But it, they kept at it for so long, I, I liked it again by the end. Like I, I was like, okay, that's kind of... Ta- you know, oh, and they're going to keep going, all right, this is getting less and less funny. But by the end, I loved it. I, you know, like they, they persevered just long enough. Uh, <laughs> Like when they're running and literally they're getting slapped left and right. right. It's it's, oh. it's it's after they come out, right? That last time when they when they oh. they've saved Trillian and they come out and Arthur says, "I have no idea," and gets smacked in the face again. I was like, "Okay, it's all worth it now." That that, that was that was that was enough. So that's well, the problem with Jar Jar Binks. We didn't have enough Jar Jar Binks in the Phantom Minute. <laughs> More. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think that that one was that's, a problem that would be solved by quantity, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting theory. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's uh, I, I mean, I think it's funny, it, it, like because it's clearly not like the things aren't triggered by having an idea. It's by stating that you have an idea or that right. you know some kind of a, it's it's like you can have all the ideas you want, just don't tell people about them. <laughs> <laughs> and and everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh well, I do. Yeah. I I do. Though so speaking of of comedy and comic effect, I was disappointed in the Vogon poetry. First of all, mm. like they talked over the Vogon poetry, and I'm like, come on, you know, we got like half a line of Vogon poetry, and then Stephen Fry cuts over it, and we're just kind of can barely hear it in the background. Um, I was glad that we did get "See if I don't" at the end, which is my favorite line of the of the Vogon poem. But um, but it doesn't have the same effect if you don't build up to it the way that the poem does. I also, I guess, I was kind of confused by the Vogon poetry thing because on the one hand, they made a, a kind of bigger deal of it than I was almost expecting them to. Really, I mean, with it, not only 
they, we had this set up in advance about not listening to the, but we did the whole Vogon poetry is the third worst poetry in the universe thing from the, you know, from, from Stephen Fry. Um, we had this whole scene with like the shaft and all the audience and the microphone descending down. I mean, it was like this big dramatic buildup, but we didn't get poetry appreciation chairs, right? We didn't get the kinds of reactions. Arthur just looked vaguely confused the whole time that the Vogon poetry was being read to them. Um, and so that it was, I I I felt like it was this to me, this bizarre kind of um, combination of on the one hand they like you could say they did full justice to the scene. I mean they really they did the whole thing, but at the same time it was as if they weren't really committed to it. You know, like they're not going to really do the poem. We're not going to get the poetry appreciation chairs. Um, you know, we're not going to show the physical effect. I mean, the thing that makes me laugh more than anything else in the book account is the way in which the recitation of the poem is interrupted by like screams and groans from, from Arthur uh, and 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 Ford. That's really good. I mean, it's. Uh, because of course, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here listening to the poem, right? And I'm like, okay, this is this is not a very good poem, but you know, I'm not about to start writhing and shrieking and and gasping, you know. Uh, and so hearing their their exaggerated reaction just cracks me up every single time. So, um, anyway, I I I I thought it was uh, it was sort of uh, slightly peculiar the way that they kind of the way they end up sort of being a little half-hearted on the Vogon poetry front. Yeah, the joke doesn't quite land the same, does it? No, it really doesn't. I don't know if they were afraid of the joke in some sense, like that it wouldn't be funny, like to, to amplify the metaphors and, and you know, like the, what, what the poetry appreciation chair was meant to be doing. Yeah. Right. And that, that that was going to be torture. I, I, I don't know. Like I, it's, I, I have a hard time figuring out why they went to the lengths that they did and yet kind of pulled back from it. I wonder if it's just that they didn't think they could make that effect. Well, I was just saying the thing that you pointed out in the Academy series about how one of the funniest things about the poetry is that it's not actually like worse than it is. Yeah. And I wonder if they, I'm crit ficking, but I'm wondering if like they were kind of, sensitive to that oh if we just have them read it what if it's not funny what if the audience doesn't get that this is bad and thinks it's <laughs> stupid that they're writhing and screaming and so we'll kind of cover it up and like if you don't hear it you don't have to hear how kind of mediocre it is <laughs> the fear the fear lest the audience not understand the fact that it's bad poetry yeah or like that they not perceive the badness of the poetry yeah yeah, that's uh... well. Like, w- like, what if they had taken it almost like the uh, like Andy Kaufman reading The Great Gatsby kind of like just very straightforward, like without all of the you know because like I feel like because you get the Vogon like the inflection and and like all of that you know like what if he had just read it like as dryly and like matter of factly as he could have. And then, I i mean, yeah, Ford kind of rides around a little bit. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, Martin Freeman just kind of stands there looking like, what's going on here? Mm. Yeah. And, and well, you don't I, get the I, sense that there's any kind of physical agony mm-hmm. from 
just hearing the words coming out of his mouth. Uh, and my my guess is that he's meant to be the audience standing there. Of yeah. they're expecting the audience to hear the poetry and just kind of go, huh? Like, do we get it? And whereas maybe they would have needed Arthur to also just completely commit to <coughs> the a- absolute torture that he's going through. Yeah. I don't know. I think at I think at a cutting back and forth, you know, Curtis, just as you're suggesting, I would have had the Vogon deliver the poem, right, in like a really deep, serious poetry recitation voice, right? Like he's taking himself completely seriously, like this is a... Re- and uh, personally, I would have tried to toy with the... Like, to, to hope that the audience would make the mistake of like kind of thinking like... Or at least be asking themselves, wait, is this a good poem or a bad poem? Is this supposed to be good or bad, right? I would love it if the audience were asking themselves that. And then you cut to a picture of Ford and uh, and Arthur, like, you know, uh, like writhing. And I'd, I would have had, like, blood coming out of their ears and, like, you know, just like the, the cut to the torment and the horror of their of their reaction. Uh, come on, that would have been really, that would have been really funny. Oh, well. I actually had a similar reaction to Corey, but the uh, the fly swatters on the Vogon homeworld initially, uh, and I ended up liking them as well, but for a different reason. Um, it's really when I took a step back and thought, "Where are we? We're on the Vogon homeworld, the homeworld of bureaucrats," and you have something that hits you whenever you have an independent thought. <laughs> I just <laughs> love that irony. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that was intentional, but that was just that that worked really well. I'm sure it was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I agree. I conceptually, I liked it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I I liked the fact that what they had the jeweled crabs. Um, yep. I mm-hmm. was. Uh, I wasn't sure whether I liked the fact that when their escape pod landed and the door opened, they crushed a crab like one of the Vogons. You know, the way that that kind of put them into the position of the Vogons. Um, sure. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't sure about that. I'm kind of still thinking about that. You know, the with the 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 fate of the jeweled crab there, but. Um, I I know one of the the jokes that gets. Um, maligned uh a lot too is is the very ending uh with oh you know sorry to tell you but the uh restaurant at the end of the universe is at it's at the other end of the the universe universe, and um of course the the end of the universe is actually time not space space, um in in the book and a lot of people so i i have to wonder like like i can't believe that like the people doing this movie didn't realize that. Yeah. Like, like I almost feel like that's a joke on the people who are taking the line too literally as like, Oh, that's not funny because you're getting it all wrong, but maybe they got it exactly right. And that's the joke is that we know it's not at the other end of the physical universe, you know, spatially it's at the other end of, of time. Um, yeah. I don't know. Just yeah. I, I laugh at it every time it comes up. I agree with you. That can't I mean I that can't be just them screwing it up. I mean that's that that, that absolutely can't be. Um 
Uh, so yeah, I, I, I like the idea of the, them sort of playing with it. I mean, on the one hand, of course, the idea that the restaurant at the end of the universe is at the end of time is sort of a joke they don't have time to develop, right? You know, in the it, it, you know they, they can't sort of spring that particular comedic trap in the context of the of the story, so they sort of make something else of it. But which is how I read it, you know, the first time the first time I saw that, you know, that they were just like, okay, they're just kind of shifting the joke because they wanted to make a joke out of it, but they couldn't make the original joke, so they made a, a different and kind of lesser one, but okay. But Curtis, I love the idea that they're like actively screwing with the people who would be offended by that. That that's that's uh that's kind of fun actually. Yeah. Okay. So this might be blasphemy, but one joke that did not work for me in the film that worked all right for me in the book was the whale joke when the whale was falling, yeah. because mm. seeing seeing a whale fall to its death felt very different than just reading about it. <laughs> when I saw that scene and this this rewatch, I was like, maybe I mean I've I've been watching BBC's Blue Planet recently, and the last episode had some sperm whales, so maybe <laughs> maybe it's just insensitized, but I just I just felt I felt the sense of dread for this poor whale. And again, it's just not something I felt in the book. But when you see it on film and you hear the whale, it's like, that didn't work well for me. For I, me, I, in the book, I mean, you have the whale's carcass. Right. <laughs> and yeah, that's much more like, I, I, had the, I had totally the opposite reaction. I thought it was way funnier to, to, to watch the whale die. Um, uh, but I, I mean, you have the, the, the voice actor actually was in um, Black Books. Uh, he's really funny, and um, and so I really liked hearing that, and then um, and then not seeing the actual, you know, the carcass of the whale, and um, I, I mean, I in the book that was that I definitely felt very, you know, more upset and more I felt you know more empathetic to the whale um, in the book than I did in the film. Interestingly, I know it is interesting, and that's funny because I feel like I'm in the exact middle of. To me, that's one of the ones where my experience of the movie moment was almost identical to the book mode. Like, to me, that was like a very faithful, close representation of the mixed kind of, you know, philosophy, like, you know, what kind of deep, dark themes are we getting at here with just like the kind of splatter comedy of it. Um, And I agree, like, maybe it works because it is such a, you know, it's just a monologue. Like, as long as you get someone to do that monologue justice, the humor is going to come through. And and the actor did a really good job of conveying that. Yeah. I will, I will say an even more blasphemous thing, which is that I, that's probably my least favorite joke in the book. Like I, I mean, it's funny. It's not that I don't acknowledge that it's funny, but I, uh, Maybe it's because I feel too strongly for the whale and am dreading what's good that uh, uh, that I don't handle the sort of the comedy value of it while like combined with the dread of its incipient death of which it's ignorant. You know, the the way the dramatic irony uh, plays off of the comedy there is perhaps too much for me. But um, the primary thing for me uh, that. Where I, I agreed, I, I, I was not a fan of that scene, how it came off in the film. But the reason for me, it's true that the actual, in a sense, the puff of snow that comes up when the, when the, when the whale lands um, was almost like more graphic than the verbal description of the chunks of whale meat that were lying around afterwards. But anyway, the thing that, that bothered me is 
seeing an actual whale on screen or like at least a digital whale or whatever, seeing a whale on screen, there was more of a disconnect between the picture and the voice, I felt, because the voice is really animated, right? But, of course, the whale is just perfectly impassive while it's falling. It wasn't even thrashing its tail about or anything, right? So it was hard for me to connect seeing the picture of the whale. It was hard for me to connect the voice that I'm hearing with the whale that I'm seeing, um, whereas I can build that imaginative link in the uh, in the book, which, of course, makes it much more painful. But or in the radio drama where again I'm just I'm imagining the whale but I'm just and and just and just listening to it. Well, it's a like in a similar way they kind of put a voice to the dolphins, you know, dolphins and whales like right. like the song so long and thanks for all the fish um whereas you know you see them in the beginning and of course they don't have any voices that we can hear but this song is playing and so but it's like their song that they made which is a very animated very like you know, musical number. Um, so there's some, I think that'd be an interesting thing to compare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we're coming up right here on the two hour mark and I know we got some feedback that we, some of our listeners might like to not listen longer than that. Um, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't quite put exactly that way. Um, I think it was. You should stick to the uh, uh, advertised time frame of your sessions. Um, I don't think that, Corey that's, ever gets this back, right? This is that's what I'm all about, though. It's because I'm so scrupulous about it. That's why people are spoiled, because they're used to me ending right on time all the time, so they can't handle it. I mean, we were just following in the grand Mythgard tradition. Um, (laughs) But I did want to bring up the um, two very minor bits of cultural impact that I could tie directly to the movie, um, you know, that weren't based on other iterations of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Of course, there are many, right? You know, I, even my 13-year-old daughter who had never read the book, seen the movie or or anything, knew um, the answer to the question of life, universe, and everything. Um, she had no idea where that came from or, you know, whatever, but she knew it when I asked her. Um, but these were two, two examples that, um, one of which I found, one of which Kat pointed out, um, First is uh, there are out there. You can buy a T-shirt for uh, don't vote for stupid. Whoever that might be referring to for you, given your various <laughs> political um, persuasions. It's a very I guess. flexible slogan, um, really. And, and that's I found I did not make this. This was on the interweb and uh, is out there. You can find it in whatever flavor you desire. Um, and then. Um, what was more interesting was um, the references here in Doctor Who, the, the, specifically the 2005 Christmas special. So we're only talking, what, six, eight months after the movie yeah. came out. Um, That's very striking. We, we get the um, reference to anything else he's got two of, um, which is a line specifically from the movie, I believe. I don't mm-hmm. remember mm-hmm. it being from right. any of that, that really That really jumped out at me because I've seen this Dr. Hooper before and got the, you know, joke about, you know, being in your pajamas and everything. Um, but, um, you know, then watching the movie, suddenly the anything else he's got to of, I thought, well, that's a Dr. Who reference. But I, 
I'm pretty sure that that line is original to the Hitchhiker's movie, right? Like that's it's not, not in yeah, the novel. The no. I couldn't find it. In no, the... it cracks me up that within a calendar year, you know, um, and and it's not even the far from the most popular adaptation or version of Hitchhiker's Guide. Doctor Who is referencing the movie version like six months later, basically. Um, and then in that same episode, you get the the reference to a man in his gym jams, very Arthur Dent, which isn't necessarily specifically referring to the movie, but sort of coupled with the other reference, you know, seems pretty damning. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I would have, I would have, uh, I would have guessed that the, when he actually, when the doctor actually alludes to Arthur Dent, I would have assumed he was making a reference to the TV series um, because Arthur's being in his PJs is not something that gets a lot of emphasis in the book. Uh, I mean, we know that he's like lying in front of the bull. I mean, like it's it's true if you kind of think it through, but no one ever brings it up that I recall after, you know, after he's on the Vogon ship. I don't think there's is there a single reference to him still being in his PJs? I can't remember one. It's not a it's not an obtrusive element of the story. Um, whereas you get it, I mean, like even in the even in the picture that you had of the TV, you know, of the of the TV from the TV series, the image that you had way back in one of the first slides, Curtis, um, still had him in his robe, right? Um, so you can see that that's uh, that there, right? Yeah, um, he's in a bathrobe, right? So you can see that it's it's that element of it, which again is derived from the book, but is already sort of made a bigger deal of. So anyway. But so, Kat, just back to your point, I would never have thought, it would never even have occurred to me that when David Tennant refers to Arthur Dent, that it was alluding to the film, to the to the to the Martin Freeman film. But yeah, the anything else he's got two of that that seems comparatively smoking gunish because that yes, that is not in any other adaptation. Oh, you know what Mike is saying? It's in the TV show. That line. It is? Oh, is it? That's what Mike says. I don't know. We might have to go fact check. You might have to go back and look. Maybe. I mean, it's not that I can't imagine it being being in anything else. But it comes up, of course, in the film in the context of Arthur's rivalry with Zaphod, with, like, you know, the love interest, you know, with Trillian, which is, of course, so much more. Right, because he's got two heads. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. No, I, I think we need a fact-finding mission to, you know, right. oh, who, no. who, who has access to the TV show. Mike is specifying it's not the line he was talking about. It's it's the it's the the pajamas that they, they, they emphasize the pajamas uh, in the thing. But, Mike, are you saying go. that it is also the in, in the annotated script? I'm having a hard time following uh, Mike's comments here, but... Um, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, no, no, the... I mean, the, right. Okay. The, he said actually there is a comment about uh, there is a, they do make a penis joke in the in the film in the in the TV series as well. So gotcha. Well, I'm, I'm curious if it's worded exactly the same because it's verbatim between yes. you know. So I, I you know yeah. Uh, I still would like to see you know I need to go track down the TV series clearly, but um, I, I mean I also like the way I mean we're talking about which version of the story is the doctor alluding to, but 
the way he says, now there is a nice man, implies that he has met him. He's so, met him, right, um, yeah. There's that element, too. I had the same thought. I'm glad that you did, too. Is it, it, we were talking about, you know, if the doctor is someone, who would it be? And it's like, this is bringing it like, oh, yeah, of course the doctor has met the doctor, yeah. <laughs> right. right. there the whole time, so now. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even just just think about the significance of that as a nod, right? I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, in writing the, the Doctor Who Christmas special, they are imagining the Doctor Who fictional world as continuous with the Hitchhiker's Guide world, right? Um, you know, that's a really pronounced nod to, to Adams's world there, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mike is clarifying that the, the 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 penis joke is implied in the costuming. Right, it's so not I think verbal. That 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 specific line of dialogue as spin on the joke seems to originate from what I can tell with the movie. So it's yeah. just funny little connection. Oh, yeah. That's Definitely. Well, I you know Unless there are any other final burning thoughts, I, I think we can um, put this one to bed. But yeah, no, this is, I mean, I was a little worried when we sort of committed to doing the movie version of this after after the book was, because like, I think we decided this kind of even before we had done any movie club, you know, uh, uh, episodes and we knew that Hitchhiker's Guide was coming up. And, and also that... Um, the 40th anniversary of the radio series um, is in like March. Like it's only a couple weeks away at most. Um, and so we are kind of like, oh, the timing seems to work out. And then thinking back on it, I was like, you know, I've seen that movie and like, I don't really remember it that well. Like, <laughs> is it good? Like, should this be something we're even talking about? Um, I, I mean, so I, I don't know. Why? And I was going to say, like, I don't know, just because we've talked about it for a little over two hours doesn't necessarily mean that it, we've answered that question particularly. Right. <laughs> like, and it doesn't it prove it's good. Yeah. We can get together and talk for two hours about a movie regardless of, of right. you know, its importance or um, worthiness. Um, but no, I think I, I think uh, this was turned out to be a much better discussion than I feared it could have been. Um and and I think um, to Dom's point, like a lot of it does hold up better than even I remembered um, having seen it. I don't remember exactly. When, I did not see it in the theater. I saw it after you know it came out on on video, but it maybe wasn't long after. But even so, like ten years later, it's it's still a worthy movie. I I feel like it's worthy. I guess sort of the the last thing I would um, I would say, and not, and not to say that I have to have the last word. Free, feel free to add to this is um, one of the points and I admit I, I threw this in there as a triggering comment for all of our Tolkien fans um, of which I am also one um, but Jeremiah Kipp in Slant wrote um, almost every narrative thread goes unresolved and not in that fellowship of the ring way that's paving the way for sequels um, which of course we know it's they're not really sequels they're just continuations of the story because it's all one story I get it um, but it is kind of surprising given this day and age of franchise and given that Hitchhiker's Guide already is such a franchise in and of itself, mm -hmm. 
that they didn't seem to write this with a sequel in mind. Like, it's a story, it gets wrapped up. I mean, yes, there are certainly ways that you could see that they might take it if they were to do a sequel. And I guess for a very brief period of time, there was potential talk of a sequel, although it never did, it didn't do well enough in the box office to sort of justify that. Um, at least in the, in the, you know, movie studio executives eyes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, so we're not going to talk about this, at least in film club again, maybe at some point we'll talk about other adaptations and some other Mythgard capacity, but there isn't a sequel to go to. There isn't anything. And I, I guess I just, I found that kind of odd in reflection, not necessarily when I was watching it or anything, but pointing out that yeah, like, yeah, like they don't do any kind of setup that you would expect even even in a movie today where you're not sure if there will be a sequel, you always feel like they leave that back door open. And I don't feel like that happened here. Yeah. And uh, so just kind of wanted to throw that out there. But Exactly. And Curtis, especially thinking of the, the point you were making about the, the restaurant at the, at the end of the universe joke at the end. Right. That's the thing that surprised me most about it, because, of course, the reference to the restaurant at the end of the universe at the end of the book is explicitly that, you know, the paving away for the sequel thing. That's it's it's like a transition. Uh, it's it is explicitly a teaser in the book for the mm. next part of the story, right? And the fact that they took that, there was a built-in teaser for a sequel in the story that they're adapting and they twisted, they they, they, they took that out, right? They, they made it into a sort of standalone joke instead of a teaser for, uh, you know, for, for a sequel. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, I was noticing that too, that it, it seemed surprisingly uninterested in sequels. Well, then we won't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. All right. so I guess we're done. Uh, so I guess we're done. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we'll see. We'll see you back here. Um, what was it, March 29th for um, wrinkle in for time. a wrinkle in time? Wrinkle in time. That's right. Thank it's you. not a long book. Go read it. That's right. Go read the book. There's still time to read the book before the film comes out. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for thanks for having me. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.